We're back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 23 on page 830, uh, or you can follow along on the, on the screen. Um, just to, yeah, give us, help us, you know, get our bearings back in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke chapters 1 and 2 are kind of the, the narrative around Jesus' birth and infancy and childhood. Luke chapters 3 and 4 uh, are Jesus' preparation for ministry. He gets baptized as his temptation in the wilderness. Luke chapters 4 through 9 are Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee in northern Israel, Nazareth and the surrounding cities, kind of where he was from, where he grew up. Um, so he started his ministry there. Uh, Luke chapters 9 through 19 describe Jesus' journey from uh, Galilee in northern Israel to Jerusalem in Judea in southern uh, Israel. So kind of a big, big road trip. And along the way, there's preaching and, and teaching and miracles and ministry to be, to be done. That's where we see stories like uh, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, uh, the Persistent Widow, the Rich Ruler, kind of all, a, lot of, a lot of like the greatest hits, right, of Jesus' parables happen on that trip from uh, Nazareth, fr- from Galilee to Jerusalem. Luke 19 uh, is the, the arrival in Jerusalem, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Jesus uh, arrives, uh, begins teaching in the temple courts. Luke 20 to 21, uh, we start to see conflict ensue between Jesus and this message of grace and gospel that he's preaching and the religious leaders in Jerusalem who don't really like it, and there's, there's kind of clashing there. Luke 22 which is where we were just in the fall, um, uh, Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. Peter denies Jesus, and that kind of gives way to Luke 23, where we'll begin this morning, and we'll be for about a month, um, the, the crucifixion and the, the, we have the trial and the crucifixion of, of Jesus. So we're going to study this throughout the duration of Lent this year. Um, you know, not the, not the most pleasant of, of topics, uh, but, you know, Lent isn't the most pleasant of seasons, so it's, it's kind, of, kind of appropriate. Uh, but yeah, the, the resurrection and ascension will, will hit in Easter and the weeks following, um, and that should conclude our series going through the, the Gospel of Luke. But as for today, uh, Luke 23, 1 through 7, Jesus before uh, Pontius Pilate, kind of his, this phase of his trial before this particular uh, character. I'm going to read through it and then pray, and then we'll spend some time considering this text considering what it means and and applying it to our our lives. It reads, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, "We, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, he said, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the gift of your word. We thank you for the, the privilege that it is to have access to it, to be able to read it in our own language and to own a personal copy of it. There are Christians all around the world today who would love to have privileges like that, and so help us to never uh, take them for granted. Lord, help us to never take the church for granted, right? A, a, a body of believers who can gather together and, and be in covenant relationship with and sit under your word together and walk with Jesus together. Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would use them this morning to work in our hearts and to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, 
The whole company of them arose, brought him before Pilate. We're talking about religious leaders, priests, scribes, Pharisees. Judas has just handed them over, handed Jesus over to them in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. Uh, they went immediately to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. They had their own kind of internal religious uh, trial there where they accused Jesus of and found him guilty of, of blasphemy and decided that they uh, wanted to... Um, you know, wanted to, to kill him. The catch is they don't have the authority to do that. Only, only Rome has the authority to, you know, execute capital punishment for, for people who are, are deserving of it. Uh, you know, Israelites, the, the, the government of Israel had its kind of own local autonomy to kind of practice and, and enforce its own laws to a degree, um, like all of the other civilizations that Rome kind of had its power over and had kind of uh, assimilated. Um, but, but, you know, the power of actually executing criminals was something, you know, Rome would kind of, they, they would, it was this ever-expanding empire, and they would kind of go conquer, uh, you know, villages and cities and regions and civilizations, kind of conquer them, and, and um, you know, Caesar was happy to let most of these, uh, you know, regions kind of practice their own laws, rules, customs, religions, things like that, provided that they, you know, um, ultimately gave, you know, like bowed the knee to Caesar, acknowledged him and his uh, authority. But again, they retained, you know, certain things. Uh, we're going to, ha- certain things have to run through me as Caesar. Certain things have to run through the, the Roman government and capital punishment was was one of them. And so the Jewish leaders decide that they uh, want to have Jesus killed uh, by their own estimation, he has broken their laws. He's guilty of a capital crime. They bring him to the Roman government to make it happen, and that is uh, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, so that southern region of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Pontius Pilate was the Roman-appointed governor of that region. He answered to, to Caesar, but he was kind of uh, sovereign over that particular uh, area of Caesar's territory. Pilate was not Pilate was not a nice guy, not a good guy. He was ruthless, he was brutal, he was violent. Uh, his people resented him. He, he kind of had a, a reputation among the other uh, Roman government officials of you know yeah be, being a, a pretty uh, ruthless and a, a not well liked governor of his his people. He would impose. Uh, Roman practices and traditions and religions on the people of Israel. They resented him for it. Uh, In Luke 13, we see Pilate mentioned uh, in the context of his uh, killing a bunch of um, you know, Israelites, uh, they're actually in a worship service and, and Pilate sends a delegation of soldiers, presumably to, to go into their worship. They're, they're, they're in a worship service offering sacrifices. There's animals that they have sacrificed to the Lord. And there's the blood of those animals has kind of spilled onto the floor of the, of the synagogue or the temple. And, um, uh, the, the, a delegation of Roman soldiers comes in and kills all of these uh, Jewish Israelite worshipers, and their blood, it says, mixes with the, the blood of the, the sacrifices. And so Pilate was a, a ruthless man, a violent man, a bad guy. Pretty much only cared about the, the higher-ups back in Rome, the people that could uh, give him more power or more uh, authority or more resources and things like that. And so the, the Jewish religious leaders, they know uh, that Pilate is ruthless. They know that he won't hesitate to, to slaughter people, plural, let alone one person if it's in his best interest. And so they bring Jesus to him, hoping that he will sign off and that they can have him eliminated. And it says, verse 2, they begin to accuse him, saying, we have found this man guilty of misleading our nation and forbidding us to give a tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So three, uh, three allegations that they bring here. Misleading our nation forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a a king. These are like, you know, three specifically crafted, wordsmithed, you know, allegations that are designed with uh, Pontius Pilate in mind. They're designed to trigger his fears and to make him upset and to cause him react in anger, right? Jesus is misleading. So Pilate's whole job was to lead the nation. 
They're saying this guy is misleading the nation. This guy is un- like your whole job and what you're supposed to do. He's undermining it. He's trying to do the opposite. He's trying to, to, to take what you're doing and thwart it and, and mess it up. And in so doing, he's trying to get you in trouble with the people that you report to, that you answer to, right? Your job as, as pilot who responds to reports to Caesar is to take your area that he's given to you, keep it calm, keep it safe, keep it quiet, you know, keep it uh, profitable, right? right? Uh, Caesar basically says to Pilate, I don't want to hear a bunch of complaints from the people that you're ruling over. I don't want them to be complaining to me about you. I don't want to have to mobilize an army to come down there to either quell some insurrection or to protect you from some invading uh, foreign power that's coming that kind of recognizes that you are weak or vulnerable. So you just, you be just make sure that the checks show up on time, right? Send me your taxes on time, but govern amongst yourselves and kind of don't, don't give me, don't, don't make me have to come down there and, and handle things. And so the religious leaders are saying, Jesus is threatening or thwarting your ability to do that. Your ability to lead the nation, he's trying to mislead the nation. He's trying to rile people up and, and cause angst and get us into, into trouble. You have to make sure, right? You have to make sure that he stops, uh, you know, s- stops causing trouble, cause, agitating the, the people. And Pilate uh, very likely either hears or maybe the religious leaders suspect that he will hear that and think, yeah, you're right. I should get rid of this guy, right? This is a, this is a problem. But it's, not, it's not just that he's misleading the nation, right? Maybe trying to seduce the nation away from Roman loyalty, which would upset Caesar and get you, Pilate, in trouble. But he's also forbidding us to give tribute to, to Caesar. So it's not just a, a psychological. It's not just a, 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 you know, a, a matter of what people think, but it's a, it's a financial matter, right? This guy, he's telling people to stop paying their, their taxes, that was Caesar's big thing. Caesar's big thing was, like I said, right? You do you. I'm not going to come in there and, and, you know, dictate terms on every small matter, every way of life. As long as you say, you know, Caesar is Lord, whenever I ask you, as long as you send me your... Ta- I mean, this is how Caesar amassed a fortune that is equivalent to um, $4 trillion in today's money. So... There's, I mean, think, think the richest people on the world today, multiply it by dozens and dozens, and that starts to, to get at the, the, the fortune that Caesar amassed. And the way that he did it, like I said, was conquering area after area, region after region, and then putting them on a plan. You send me most of the money that you make. I'm going to take it for myself. If they have a problem, let me know. I'll send the military to protect you, but don't make that happen too often. Just send me your money. And so they're saying Jesus is telling people to stop sending money to Caesar. And if Caesar stops getting your money, he's going to be looking at you, Pilate. He's going to be upset at you, Pilate. We are on your team. We want to pay taxes to Caesar. We know that you need us and the people that we have influence over to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus is kind of threatening to to rock the boat and mess that entire system up. Of course, that wasn't true, right? That, That allegation is patently false that Jesus was forbidding uh, people to give tribute to Caesar. In fact, it just happened in Luke 20, like that, that the, a few days prior, um, the, the religious leaders had come up to Jesus and asked him, uh, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And Jesus perceives, so Jesus knows that they are trying to trick him because they come up to Jesus and they ask him this question. The, probably the very same people who are now telling Pilate that Jesus forbade people to pay tribute to Caesar. Uh, they came up to him and they're, they're trying to pit him into a corner because they know that there's, you know, there's, there's political, um, you know, implications here, uh, that this is kind of a sensitive issue, right? And so they know that if Jesus says, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, then they can run to Pilate and tell him and Pilate will be mad and have him arrested, maybe killed. But they know that if Jesus says yes, then he'll be outed as a, as a Roman sympathizer, Right? Uh, and, and maybe the people would all just kind of reject him and dismiss him. We don't want anything to do with that guy because he is, is opposed to Israelite sovereignty. He's opposed to us governing ourselves, doing our own thing, which is kind of what the people, by and large, wanted. And so they're saying, we want you on the record uh, so that we can either 
tattle on you to the Roman authorities and get you canceled, or so that we can expose you to the Israelite masses and get you canceled. But either way, we want you to, to kind of, we want to trick you and kind of put you into a corner. And Jesus perceives their craftiness and says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they say, Caesar's. And he said, all right, well then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. So, pay your taxes. Well, yeah, so he's saying, he's saying one thing he's certainly not saying is don't pay tribute to Caesar because he says render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But the implication is uh, you pay money to Caesar because Caesar's image is on it. So by extension, whose image is on you, right? You're, you are created in God's image, and so just like you take your money that has Caesar's image on it, you give it to him, you have God's image kind of stamped on, marked on yourself and your being, and so you are to give the entirety of who you are to God's as an act of, of worship, So, one thing Jesus certainly did not say was that you should not pay tribute to Caesar, and yet, here in Luke 23, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of saying that he said that you are not supposed to pay tribute to Caesar. So, it's their lying. This is a false, this is prosecutorial misconduct, right? This is is a a falsehood that they are engaging in. So, So, one, he's misleading the nation. Two, he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And three, he's saying that he himself is Christ a king, which that one is true. He did do that. He did say that. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is referring to himself uh, as, as the Christ. The first words that we hear from him in Mark chapter 1, right? The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. The king is here with you. I am the king. I am the Christ. Repent and believe the, the Gospel. Jesus says unequivocally several times, that he is the Christ, he is the king. The only appropriate response to him is to acknowledge your kingship and bow your knee to him. So this third one's true. Which is kind of, that's how like good liars, it's kind of how they, right? A good liar knows that a good lie has to have just enough truth in it to make it believable and reasonable, but also plenty of falsehood in it to make it uh, you know, dangerous and, and uh, you know, damaging. So they come, they say, Jesus is claiming to be Christ the King, which is true, no argument there. Uh, he, he's saying that we shouldn't pay taxes. This is demonstrably false. And he's, they're saying he's trying to foster an insurrection and lead our nation away from Rome, which is also false. Jesus didn't really seem all that interested in, you know, leading some sort of political in time and space, you know, secession from or rebellion against the the Roman Empire. And so here's Pilate's response. All right, you've given three allegations. Let's question Jesus directly about the third of them. Are you the king of the Jews? So, So Pilate is not terribly interested in some sort of he said, he said, she said, you know, like, oh, like, you're saying that Jesus said this, so let me, like, hear testimonies or examine witnesses to see, like, he's right here. So let's just ask him what he thinks. If he, if he you know, admits to it, then that's one thing. If he doesn't, then that's not. So he asks him point blank, are you the king of the, which this, of, of all of the three, this is the one that, like, Jesus, a truthful answer from Jesus is not going to maybe be what Pilate wants to hear. Right? If he says, Did you, are, you, do you, are you misleading our nation? Jesus could truthfully say, no, I'm not. It's a false allegation. Or uh, did you forbid uh, us to give tribute to Caesar? Or do you currently think that we should not give tribute to Caesar? And he'd say, no, that's, that's uh, a false allegation. But if he says, are you the king of the Jews? This is, uh, this is the one that Jesus, uh, when Jesus answers, he says, you have, have said so. So this is the one particular question that, uh, you know, Jesus' truthful answer might not be what Pilate wants to hear. And Jesus answers in the affirmative. You have said so. It's kind of a colloquialism for, yes, it is as you have stated, or, or what you have said is exactly right, or I, I wouldn't change uh, a word of it, something like that. Jesus is not trying to be slippery or avoid the question. He's simply affirming, um, affirming what, 
what Pilate has said and affirming that it's correct and he is not, uh, not denying it, right? He's, he's actively saying, what you have said is true, what you have said is what I think, and what you have said, you know, I'm, I'm going to stand behind what you said as if it's my own, my own words. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Which is strange because presumably Pilate would have, like, based on his question and based, because Pilate is the, the, the king. He is the, the, the governing authority over the Jewish people that are there in that, in that region. So, so when he says, are you the king of the Jews? He's expecting uh, Jesus to say, no, you are, Caesar is, you are, not me. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, you have said so. It is as you have said. And Pilate then uh, strangely says, I find no guilt in this, in this man. A case is brought before him. The, the, the accusation, the charge is he claims to be king. There in the proceedings of the courtroom, the, the man who's accused of claiming to be king actively claims to be king. And then the person presiding over the court says he's not guilty, which doesn't, which is just strange. It just doesn't. Uh, it's it's you know, it's counter. It's not what we'd expect. It's counterintuitive, uh, not what we would expect. I would submit that there's maybe two things going on here that kind of inform and undergird Pilate's not guilty verdict, right? Despite the fact that he has the evidence right in front of him in the previous verse that Jesus claims to be king, he says, I find no guilt in this man. I think at least, at least two things are going on. One is that Pilate doesn't really feel threatened by Jesus. Right? He's, not, he's not particularly intimidated by him. He doesn't really take Jesus all that seriously. And so why bother with why bother with eliminating him? In fact, if you read the, the parallel account in John, John 19 and following, uh, Pilate says to, to Jesus, he says, uh, do you not know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Pilate is very clear and he's on the record with Jesus. I am in charge here. Uh, like, I hold your life in my hands. If I say the word, if I snap the fingers, you are put to death. Or I can let you, I can set you free, right? I'm up here, you're down here. I'm, you should be scared of me, I'm not scared of, of you. And because of that, he's not all that, he doesn't feel some sort of tension or some sort of, like, need to eliminate, eliminate G, right? If I'm... If I'm walking in my neighborhood and there's a 300-pound man with a lead pipe that starts accosting me and saying he's going to beat me up, I'd be scared. I'd call the police. I would try to have that man taken away from me, get him away from me because I'm scared he's going to hurt me. If I'm approached by a three-year-old with a Nerf baseball bat or, and he's saying the same exact words as the 300-pound man with a lead pipe, I'm not going to, I'm going to laugh, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, Call the police and be because I'm not threatened by him. He doesn't. He doesn't matter to me. So so I'm not going to worry about him at all because he's not a, a threat. And so I think that's partially. what I mean, Pilot here, I think feels the exact opposite of how uh, Herod the Great felt um, when Jesus was born. Right? Remember, Jesus is born, and the the Magi come from the east, and they go to to King Herod the Great. And they say, we've seen, you know, we've seen the star. We want to come and worship the king of the Jews. And he says, uh, he says, I don't know where he is, but when you find him, tell me where he is. And they, they're on to him and they don't. But then Herod is like sweating bullets. And he's like, I do not want a little baby boy in my territory that has been, that, that, that astrologers and, and, you know, wise men have told me he's going to grow up and kind of have my, take his seat on my throne. I want to, Herod, when Jesus is a little baby, sees Jesus as a threat and he wants to eliminate him. Pilate doesn't see Jesus as a threat and therefore he's not all that concerned with eliminating him. It's not that, it's not that, big, of a, it's not that big of a deal. So I think that's one thing that is, that is going on is, is that Pilate is not uh, that threatened by Jesus. And another is I think that Pilate can probably see through the bias and the agenda and the, like, the seeing, right? The, the religious leaders are, they're out for blood. They're, they're, they're coming here. They're not objective. They're not neutral 
third parties here. They actively want Jesus dead, and Pilate can probably sense that and tell that, and probably he can probably think, all right, one of two things is true. Right? Either I'm looking here at a, a, a poor, uneducated, blue-collar commoner from, you know, from, from out of the area with no resources, no influence, no power, One of two things is true. Either that guy is a violent revolutionary who is in the process of swaying the entire nation toward rebellion, in which case I need to have him jailed or killed, or the people bringing these accusations are biased. And they they want him dead for whatever reason, and they're trying to manipulate me into doing their will and killing him for them because they can't. And so Pilate looks at Jesus and kind of thinks, I think, the la- I think it's more likely that these uh, you know, religious leaders accusing you are biased or not being truthful or accurate than it is that you are the, the revolutionary that they are claiming that you are. And so Pilate's leaning toward. He says, this man, I find no guilt in this man. He's leaning toward releasing him. I, what, what do you want from me? I'm not going to you know, rubber stamp your murderous plot because I don't think he's guilty. But... They were urgent, saying, Pilate, he stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea and from Galilee, even down to this place. Right? This is a bad guy. We need him. He's a menace. He's a threat to public safety. Right? We're living in a society. We need to act in a civilized way. And, and he's threatening to undo the social fabric. Right? He's teaching all kinds of crazy ideas. We, we, have, we have a system. We have a system that's ordered. Righteous, religious, affluent people like ourselves are at the top, like we should be. Everyone's listening to us. Everyone respects us. Jesus is trying to upend all of that. He's trying, it's chaos. We need order. He's trying to make chaos. He has to be silenced and he has to be eliminated. And Pilate, it's not just here. I mean, it's here in the middle, in the heart of your, of your jurisdiction, in the heart of Judea where you are the governor. It's here, but it's everywhere. It's all throughout all of Judea and from Galilee even down to this, to this place. In verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether or not the man was a Galilean. This is like the, it's like the light bulb moment, right? This is like, it's like the, in the Grinch movie where it's like, and then the Grinch, like, he gets the big smile. He's like, now he has an idea about how to keep Christmas from, from coming, right? Like, Pilate, he's like, wait, wait what did you say? He, you said that he's, you know, doing this kind of, like, you know, he's causing this unrest, not just here in Judea, but from, Gal- from Galilee here to Judea. And they say, yeah, yeah, he, he's from Galilee, and he's been teaching these kinds of like uh, dangerous teachings from there all the way down to here. Verse 7, when he learned that he, that Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So here's the plan. Here's the, the scheme that Pilate kind of hatches. Pilate's a career politician, right? He uh, knows how to play the, play the game. He knows how to you know, be careful, not, you know, say things without saying things or do things, you know, make sure that they can't pin you down to one side or the, the other. Because he knows that he's got, he knows he's in a bind here, right? He knows that, that on the one hand, I could just have Jesus killed. That would be easy. I've, I've got that power. No one's going to question me. No one's going to come asking for receipts about, you know, I could just have Jesus killed. No problem. That's not ideal. One, I mean, assuming that he has you know, a, a conscience that would be pricked by that, it would, that, that would weigh on his conscience, right? He took the life of a person that he didn't think was guilty of anything. But two, anyone out there who may or may not be pro-Jesus, if they heard that, that Pilate signed off on killing Jesus, even though he wasn't guilty, they would then become definitively anti-Pilate. And Pilate cares a lot about his reputation. He cares a lot about having the support and the approval of the people that he is uh, governing. So on the one hand, it's not ideal to kill Jesus. But it's also not ideal to let Jesus go free because then the religious leaders would be mad at him. And then these guys would be definitively anti 
Pilate. And that's not good because these guys have a lot of sway with the people of Israel, right? They, they, can, they can make things happen. They, they were, the, they were the, the center of gravity, of influence in the, 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 the people of Jerusalem. Like, you know, it's the phrase like, happy wife, happy life, right? That's what you learn when you get married. If you ever have a decision, you have to think about something, right? If you, if you can make your wife happy, then you're, you, it's, it's gonna, things are going to work out for you in the, long, in the long term. Pilate, it's like happy religious leaders, happy, right? If I can get these guys to, if I can make sure that they're happy, then they have a lot of influence over all of the people that I am governing. If they're not happy, they could make my life more difficult. If, they, if, if these guys are mad at me, then I am invariably going to have all kinds of fires that I have to put out, and it's going to make my life worse in the, in the long run. And so, so Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus. He doesn't want to let Jesus go free. He's in a, he's in a you know, he's betwixt and between here. He's got, he doesn't know what to do. But then he hears the word Galilee, and he remembers that the governor, oh, his colleague, right? I'm the governor of Judea. Herod is the governor of Galilee, and so he remembers that his, his counterpart up in northern Israel in Galilee is here. Just like Jesus, who traveled in for the Passover, so too Herod has traveled into Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a different Herod. Than, so the Herod we just mentioned, uh, Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, this is not him. This is his son, Herod Antipas. And so Herod Antipas uh, is there. He's in Jerusalem, and he has jurisdiction. I mean, Pilate has jurisdiction over everyone who's in Judea. Anything that happens in and around Judea is Pilate's jurisdiction. But Herod has jurisdiction over people that are in or things that happen in Galilee. And so this is kind of a, a hybrid case where it involves a person from Galilee. That's Herod's jurisdiction. But it happened in Judea. That's Pilate's jurisdiction. And so Pilate kind of thinks, hey, I can, I can get out of this little bind that I'm in. If I can... If I can not have to weigh in on the record as to whether Jesus should live or die, then I can go to the religious leaders and say, look, I don't like it any more than you do. I wish he was dead too, but it's just not my call to make. Let's go ask Herod. And I can go to the, the, Jesus, the pro-Jesus crowd and say, I, did, you know, I didn't sentence him to be killed. So if anything bad happens to him, it's not on me. Let's blame, let's blame Herod. Plus, he's also probably, th- I mean, it also says in, um, no, actually, I think it says here later in, later in this chapter that Herod and Pilate did not get along before that day. But from this day forward, they did get along. So Pilate is also probably thinking, this might be an opportunity for me to patch things up with Herod. We don't really, we don't really know why Pilate and Herod did not uh, get along, but it seems likely that, just, I mean, they were, competitors, right? They, they were both governors of neighboring regions in the Roman Empire, and it's kind of a zero-sum game, right? The more power and authority and, and influence and resources that one of them gets from Rome is, is power and authority and resources that the other one cannot have. They're, they're kind of competing in that sense, and so there probably was uh, some, some rivalry going on between Pilate and Herod, and yet uh, Pilate sending Jesus to Herod would have been interpreted, could have been interpreted, in fact, was interpreted by Herod as, oh, what a nice guy, right? Like, this guy could have taken Jesus, even though he's a citizen of my region, even though I should have the right to weigh in on what happens to him, uh, he just went ahead and made a verdict uh, without consulting me, without running it by me, and that would have just heightened tension between Pilate and Herod. But instead, so Pilate thinks, one, I can get out of a tough bind that I'm in. I can get out of this. I can weasel out of this decision that I'm being asked to make. And two, I can also kind of virtue signal a little bit. I can kind of give a nod to Herod. Maybe I can even come out of this, one, escaping having to weigh in on Jesus. And two, having Pilate, or having Herod owe me a favor down the road because he thinks that I was deferring to him and, and giving him um, some space to kind of exert his influence uh, here in this whole in this whole thing. So that's that's Pilate, right? Pilate is taking the easy way out. He's he's refusing to make a make a stand. He he knows what's right. He's determined himself that Jesus is without fault. He's not guilty. 
and yet he's not willing to stand up for Jesus and advocate for Jesus and ensure that Jesus gets the justice that he deserves. This whole passage, right, this whole episode, all of the characters involved, it's not a good look. It's not a good look for the religious leaders. It's not a good look for Pilate. We'll examine Herod more next week, but it's not, a, it's not going to be a good look for him either. And so I want to close this morning just by considering the actions of, these, uh, of the religious leaders and of Pilate and the, the heart posture, right? The, the motivations that kind of lie beneath those actions and see if we can't, you know, f- derive some insight into, like, see if we can kind of consider how these guys might serve as cautionary tales for us. I would submit to you that there's nothing in the heart and the soul of these religious leaders. There's nothing in the heart and soul of Pilate that compelled them to act the way that they did. That's not also lurking in our hearts that could, you know, compel us to act the same way, right? As fellow sinners, fellow descendants of Adam. The same thing that seized their hearts also exists in us, and we need to guard against it, right? Both the religious leaders and Pontius Pilate were overcome by sin and selfishness and by uh, idolatry that simply worked itself out and expressed itself in different ways in their, in their lives. The religious people were obsessed with their status, their office, their power, their, right, I am righteous, I'm godly, I am the authority on all things spiritual. I know the Bible, I know about God, I know all the rules, I follow all the rules. If anyone has a question about the rules, they come to me, they ask me about it, everyone looks to me, everyone reveres me. When I walk down the street, everyone gets out of my way. They, I put my hand out. They kiss the, the ring. Right? The, the religious leaders loved to be respected and, and greeted and celebrated and revered and thought highly of. And, and in their mind, they had spent their life climbing the ladder, the societal ladder, to get to this place where they, where they are. And then here comes Jesus. This uneducated, no credentials, who does he think he is? He just comes in on Palm Sunday to this raucous reception from people. And he starts basically saying, this whole system is stupid. The, the whole system, with all the, they climb the ladder and we all defer to them and we kiss the ring and they are righteous and they are godly and we acknowledge as much and we want, that's, that's dumb. Jesus says, they're all going to hell, and if you follow them, you're going to go to hell with them. That was a huge affront to everything that, A, the thought that they might be going to hell was absolutely scandalous to them. The thought that people should not listen to them and do what they say was absolutely terrifying to them. And so the religious leaders act exactly like you would expect someone to act when their idol is threatened, right? When the thing that you love more than God is threatened, it causes you to lash out and react and do things that you never thought that you would have done. Imagine how you'd feel, right? Imagine how you'd feel if you work your whole life, right? Uh, Working, saving, investing, right? Right? Uh, raining, you know, spending less than you make, and trying to trying to be financially wise and cautious and and savvy. I've, you know, your all of your colleagues at work are buying expensive cars and fancy vacations and going into tons of debt. And then you retire fifty years later, and your savings and your investments have appreciated, and you've got millions of dollars, and they are all in debt. And they have nothing to live on for old age. And then someone comes in and zeroes out your bank account and pays off all of their debts and gives them millions of dollars to enjoy their old age. You'd be mad. You'd be upset. Like, I worked hard for that. 
uh, th- this is mine. I've, they deserve to, to you know, deal with the, the, the just deserts of their actions, and I deserve to enjoy the fruit of my wise and good and godly living. That's kind of how the religious leaders felt about Jesus. Who the heck are you to take away what's rightfully ours? And who the heck are you to give so recklessly uh, and so liberally to everyone else who does not deserve it? They hate Jesus. They love themselves. They loved their status. They loved their reputation. They loved the life that was afforded to them from those things. You could go so far as to say that they worshipped those things and they hated Jesus. Because he represented a threat to all of the things that they loved, all of the idols that they worshipped. So the point is, when you worship something other than God, worship your possessions, worship your reputation, Worship your st- when you worship something other than God, it is going to demand more and more from you, and it will cause you to justify more and more wickedness and sin in order to protect it, until in the end, there is literally nothing that you will not do in pursuit of or protection of that thing that you have come to worship. There's no sin that you will not commit. The religious leaders worshipped their position as the authorities in Israel and it enslaved them and it drove them to bitterness, anger, violence, and murder. All done in the name of keeping things the way that they are, preserving the system that we have built. Those were their idols. And they would stop at nothing. There was no sin that they were not willing to commit to protect and to keep those. If you, if you allow idols to remain in your, in your life and in your heart, if you give your heart space to love things of this world more than you love God, it will drive you to sin against God. There is no end to the sin that you will not commit in pursuit of or in protection of those idols in your heart. Love money more than you love God. Love a comfortable life more than you love God. Love the approval of others more than you love God. You'll find yourself on a slippery slope of justifying anything and everything to get what you want, to get more of those things that you are worshiping, just like these religious leaders. Same exact thing that happened with Pontius Pilate. Manifests itself in different, uh, different sins behaviorally, but the same heart posture lying beneath it, right? The same posture that says, uh, I'm obsessed with my position, my status, the life that is afforded to me by it. I have to, ma- right? I, uh, have to make sure that at all costs, Caesar approves of me, Caesar leaves me in power, Caesar gives me more power. What does Caesar want? He wants a happy, quiet, calm region, right? So I gotta make sure that, I gotta make sure that my approval ratings stay high. I gotta make sure that people think highly of me, that they get, I don't wanna disappoint the religious leaders, I don't wanna disappoint the masses, I wanna stay on everyone's good side, so that all of the perks and all of the benefits of my position keep flowing in. And whereas the religious leaders' uh, idolatry in their heart drives them to anger, dishonesty, false accusations, conspiracy to commit murder, the idols in Pilate's heart drive him to apathy, coldness, and utter indifference to to the the plight of and the, the experience of his fellow man. Could, Pilate could not care less what happens to Jesus. And it's not just his neighbor, right? This is, Pilate is the judge. He is the, he is the authority. Pilate's job, on his job description, was get justice for Jesus. Make sure that Jesus, Jesus comes to you for justice, you give him a just outcome. Pilate was responsible for giving justice to Jesus. Pilate loved his life, his position, his right more than he than he than he loved God. 
And it caused him to be utterly into. I could care less if Jesus lives or dies. All that I want to happen is what's most convenient for me. What's most expedient for me. What's most comfortable for me. If Jesus is innocent and he dies, I don't care as long as my life does, isn't affected by it. If Jesus is guilty and he goes free and he ends up hurting another innocent person, I don't care as long as it turns out okay for me. Sin and selfishness and idolatry in the human heart will take you to places that you never thought you would go, cause you to do things that you never thought you would do, cause you to become bitter, combative, divisive, unkind, dishonest, because some created thing has wormed its way into your heart and taken its place on the throne that was designed for and intended for God the Creator. To give something else other than God the first and best of your heart and your emotions and your affections, and your time, and your money. When you give those things to something else other than God, you start down a path that will lead you toward where the religious leaders are, doing violence to people that God has called you to love, or where Pilate is, being utterly indifferent to the people that God has called you to look out for. If you look at this passage and you see the the conspiring and the lying and the murderous violence, or you see the scheming and the political maneuvering and the indifference, and you you see, man, like thank man, don't don't look at these guys and think there's there's something special. They are something unique. They are something different. There's something different about them than than me. We shouldn't be prideful and think that we would never end up where these men are. We should be sober-minded and think. What do I need to do to guard against that kind of sin in my life? Look at the, the idolatry of the heart that, that resides beneath the behavioral sins and be on guard against it. If you worship comfort and security more than you worship God, if you worship being impressive and powerful more than you worship God, if you worship money or sex or food more than you, than you worship God, you will invariably end up justifying and committing all manner of sin that you never thought that you would have, have done. And yet, the, the antidote, right? So the antidote is not to say, well, let me look at, let me look at Pilate, let me look at the religious leaders, and let me uh, simply purpose in my heart, like, let me just, like, make it a point to not do the things that they do, right? The antidote is to reverse engineer it back and look at the the heart posture that resides beneath it, right? The idea is that that Jesus is better than the things, the the other things that the religious leaders and that Pilate were, were worshiping. Knowing God in Christ is better than having the, the, the approval of, of other people. It's better than having power and authority and always getting my way. It's better than having the life that I, that I want. Walking with God and obeying God's commandments and having the joy of being filled with the Holy Spirit is better than anything that the world can offer me, right? The affections that I once had for the world and for the things that are offered by the world will be done away with. It will be expelled by the expulsive power of a new affection. As you, as you practice the spiritual disciplines, as you read the Bible, as you pray, as you meditate on the glory of God and the truth of the gospel, as you fellowship with other believers, right? right you, you will experience your desires for and affections for the world and the things that the world offers. It will grow weaker and, and weaker. Let's say you... Let's say you get up one morning, you go to work, you forget your lunch. Mid-afternoon, you're hungry, your stomach's grumbling. Someone shows up with a sack of burritos from the dollar menu. Says, hey, I, brought, I have some extra lunch. Who, who wants some? Well, you do. You eat it, right? I'm hungry. Here's food. I don't care if it's good for me, bad for me. I don't care if I'm going to feel bad later or not. I'm going to eat this, this food because it was, it was brought to me and I'm, and I'm hungry. 
perfectly reasonable. Now, let's say that you are, let's say that you set aside a Saturday and you plan it out months in advance. You're inviting your friends over and you, you uh, go out and you buy the best pork and ribs and brisket that you can find. You spend days leading up to it, seasoning them and marinating them to perfection. You cook, get up early in the morning, you cook them all day on low heat. It's, they're, they're perfectly cooked and, and tender. The table is set. This is about to be the best meal that you've ever had in your entire life. You're really, you've been looking forward to it for days and weeks. And you're ten minute, you're the, the table is set. And we're about to bring out the food. And then that same colleague from work shows up with the same sack of uh, burritos from the, with mystery meat from the dollar menu and says, do you want some of these burritos that I brought? Would you eat it? Or would you say, no, get... That, get that out of here, throw it in the trash, because I'm about to eat the best meal that I've ever, I'm, I'm hungry, but I'm not hungry for that food, I'm hungry for this better food that has been, that, that's the expulsive power of a new affection, a better affection. And so our task as the people of God is to, is to cultivate love for and affection for and a desire for God and intimacy with God and experiencing God through His Spirit and enjoying the forgiveness of sin that is freely offered to us in the Gospel. Our task is to cultivate that and enjoy God so much so that the, the world and the things that the world offers us pales by comparison. So we can sit in Pilate's seat and say, I could care less about the approval of others because I love God more than I love that. Or you could sit in the religious leader's seat and say, I could, could care less about my reputation and my uh, authority and, and all of the things that I give because I love God more than I love those things. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to love Him, enjoy Him, pursue Him, such that our desire for Him pales by comparison. And our calling as, the, the, as members of a church together is to do that together. To pursue Christ together. To run after Christ together. To trust in Christ together. Behold Him in His Word together. Encourage one another together so that we can collectively fight against sin and selfishness and love our neighbors like Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you went to the cross for us, that you allowed yourself to be arrested, that you willingly submitted to a rigged trial when you had no obligation to do so, that you let people talk down to you as if they were more powerful than you even though you're the one that created them. We thank you that you willingly died for us on the cross to save us from our sin, and we pray that we could remember that reality and internalize it and and believe it and trust deeply in it so that we might be compelled to love our neighbor just as Christ has loved us. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.